I believe that if we are honest with ourselves, that the most fascinating problem in the world is who am I? Welcome to Behind the Mind. Join Meredith Krenmer as she chats one-on-one with intriguing, inspirational and imaginative people from Australia and across the globe. In this series of candid interviews, she seeks to discover the zigzagging journeys, pivotal events, daring risks and momentous moments that fundamentally helped form the way they think and work today. Today's guest on Behind the Mind epitomizes what this podcast is all about, sharing remarkable stories of people who lead with heart, loads of zigs and zags, daring risks, ability to pick themselves back up and move on from setbacks. Brooke Howard-Smith, welcome to Behind the Mind, my fellow Kiwi. Oh, thank you so much. Boy, that's a heck of a minute. I hope we don't let everybody down. <laughs> Let's, let's, let's under-promise over the yeah, yeah. And, uh, Even if I wanted to summarize your bio, I don't think I could do it justice. And like the premise of Behind the Mind is always that, you know, behind everybody's fantastical bios, there's real people and real stories. And even people who don't have fantastic bios that by that traditional you know notion kind of thing people have always got interesting things but wiki says you're an entrepreneur a broadcaster an artist those are the three things it's leading with now yeah i feel like they're overplaying the artist part but yeah keep going on there, there's a few amendments need to be added to that there was a wiki yeah. flag on it by the way you are a philanthropist that's a check you've been a medaled x games inline skater you've clearly taken a lot of risks physically mentally and probably financially over the years. Yes, this is what. Look at my elbow. You can see my see that little oh weird my... bump on my elbow. Oh wow! I don't know if you see that, or this elbow's got like just a bit of bone that floats in it. So oh, there's wow. a lot of physical risks in there for sure. That's a great freaky thing for like Halloween to show. You know, yeah, if right. you if you've run out of treats Ooh, at the door, just when out. the kids turn up, just be like, check yeah. this out. <laughs> yeah. So how and why and what does a kid from Auckland dare to leave? Auckland for LA at just 18 years of age. I'd been wanting to be a professional skier since as long as I could remember. I'd made it to the New Zealand development team, this thing called the D team, and, but I wasn't good enough. And while the rest of the kids were going overseas and training in our summers, I saw a friend, a crazy friend who's no longer with us, who was rollerblading down Kyber Pass quite a steep hill and it was crazy. And I was like, wow, that looks like skiing. And so I started rollerblading to train to be a skier and I just enjoyed it so, so much. And I'd been skateboarding for a little while. I'd been doing different types of action sports, but I really loved this. And this is in kind of um, 1988, 89. So way before rollerblading really had taken off. This is really early days. How expensive were the boots back then? Because I always remember when my parents bought me things like that, they were like, yeah. By the way, these were really expensive. We rented them from Kyber Pass. There you go. There you go. That's so Kiwi. (laughs) And I ended up working in there probably to pay down a bill that I had. And we would rent these things and skate for like 20 hours. By the time we brought them back, they were just trashed. And then, you know, we'd rent another pair. When a team came up from the US in 1991, I'd already been skating with skateboarders and BMXs. And it started doing handrails and things like that, uh, you know, the very early stages of street skating. And so they said, hey, you should come to Los Angeles. And it was about the time that the New Zealand government made the crucial era of giving everyone their student loan grants oh. all at once. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> 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 at the start of the year, they would give, at the, if you just enrolled in university, they'd give you like $10,000. 
and you you know no one had ever seen this and people were buying one girl got a boob job with their money oh my god i took my money and this is like another weird tension my mother's an incredible artist and she had uh, the world ice carving championships in moscow i joined her on a flight to that and on my way back i just stopped in la and kind of and that was it the rest is probably admissible in the immigration and naturalization services file. Your mum, that tangent though is probably relevant, that that's yeah. a very, the seemingly randomness is probably yeah. in, like the zigs and zags in your career is like yeah. what's phenomenal, to be honest. Everybody can go online and see your amazing stuff. I can't believe you skated with Tony Hawk. You know, that's, yeah. that's you know, pretty pretty legendary. Tony's a, Tony's a total legend, just a lovely human being. When people talk about, you know, you talk about these great moments and we'll get to, get to a couple here. It's mostly just stand next to incredible people, good people, and yeah. like amazing stuff will happen. And so there's some really cool moments in my life with with Tony. I knocked out a lot of my teeth with Tony. These are all fake because yeah. I was trying to show off on a vert ramp in Santa Rosa and uh, and knock out about six teeth. Oh, my goodness. But he's just one of a, a, a group of exceptional human beings that I've been lucky enough to run into. When was the last time you put on some boots? Yeah, it's a long time ago. What ends up happening, I think, in most sports, it's not vain. I just remember being okay at it. I took a big break. I was just over it all. I came back to New Zealand about 11 years after I kind of started that journey. And um, in New Zealand, I didn't have the close friends that I was skating with in the States. And so I took a break. And then when I went back, I was shithouse. And so I just, I feel like I'd have to give it like two weeks of me trying and then I'd break my arms again. I'm just, I get too excited. And so I really haven't skated in 20, 20 years. Yeah. Wow. It's so interesting how like things which are so like formative in your life become mm. like something that it, you know, is put in a box in a chapter kind of thing. But I think, yep. you know, to be honest, skating and injuries and, you know, being yep. our age, is probably a wise idea if you want to be a yeah. good human to those around you as well. Well, there's a line. Well, there's a couple of things. The first thing is I've got an amazing wife who has, you know, said she'll stick with me through thick and thin unless I like injure myself to the point where she has to push me around and it was my core. But that also kind of combined itself at around 40, sometime around 39-ish, we started building a house and about 41, it was finished. And I'd built a pool in the middle of the house and it was a two-story. You could jump off into the middle of this pool. We made the pool three meters deep. It was the worst recreational pool ever. It was freezing all the time because it was so deep. My wife kind of was reasonably upset with me. But I jumped off it a few times and then I turned 40. I was like, oh, I, I don't feel like doing stupid shit anymore. Yeah, that wild, the wild bit of your brain had probably been like, okay, I'm just going to, that's the first, this is the, you know, and that's probably an evolutionary thing to, you know, keep us safe and preserve our lives, isn't it? Yeah, the very same things that trigger adrenaline in your youth, like a roller coaster, you know, trigger kind of a sense of nausea as you get older. And I'm still pretty, probably risk friendly, but just in different places now. Every Kiwi remembers where they were during the 2011 earthquake. My story, I was in Sydney doing a bit of a checkout, moving back from the UK with my husband, and I called my sister because she lived in Christchurch, and they were in the States, and I said, oh, oh wow. there's been another earthquake. And she was like, oh, you know, and it was a lower on the Richter, and then she was like, oh, no, that's fine. The other one was bigger. I was like, no, I don't, I think you need to turn on the news. But tell me about why that is such a pivotal event in your story. Yeah, I'd come home skating for however long for 10 plus years. It's a pretty easy, fun job. And then I found that like the next easiest job was presenting television. 
I'd started presenting some shows that were actually sports related and then kind of moved into some more mainstream things, a show called Target, which is like just catching knicker sniffers. Kiwis will know what that is. Outside of that, it's just whatever show in your country where they put in hidden cameras to catch people who are sniffing knickers, that was that show. Um, And I had a nightclub called The Pony Club, which is a terrible place. But I was living a pretty kind of vapid and empty life. And then, you know, Christchurch earthquake happened. And like a lot of people, uh, particularly those nowhere near Christchurch, the sense of like helplessness and an inability to kind of do anything was overwhelming for everyone. And I posted, I'd been kind of convincing. I love national endeavor. And if you grew up in New Zealand in the 80s and 90s, telethons were a big thing. They, they brought the country together. And so I'd kind of been pushing it at the networks that it would be cool if we did something like that again. And then I messaged in a group. So I put a a post up saying, surely right now, this is the opportunity for us to come together and put together a telethon. And it went viral. So this is in the olden days when Facebook had reach and, you know, 100,000 reach really, really fast. It went viral. And then I put a, you know, I screenshot it and I put a message to TV3 and TVNZ and Maori television and said, I think this is a good idea. And for once, because I used to send them ideas all the time, they, they all came back and said, yeah, I think, I think you could be right. And so for the first and only time, we had different presenters from different networks all there. And it was hosted on Maori television. It raised uh, $2.7 million. And it illustrated to me something that would really change kind of the direction of what I enjoy doing. And that is the sense of, I think that creating great content is a lot of fun. It's amazing. And then I think that that content can inspire communities to affect change. And those points, there are so many little points along that journey that have so much enjoyment, raising the money or organizing the event and organizing the content and the fact that I'm able to kind of convince pine tree meads to judge dancing with the stars or Ma'anonu to dance on it or bands that I've always loved to play. And, you know, the, if the event itself and the cause is the motivator, which means I don't have to do too much work in that sense. That was understanding that. But then eventually, obviously, seeing how it affected the people of Christchurch who were doing it pretty tough. And there was something as little as it was, $2.7 million isn't a lot of money in context of what they needed. Um, It was more a case that there were a lot of people able to signal just how much um, they were hurting with people that were doing it tough. I mean, there's so many layers to this. I think what strikes me is you've obviously, you've said a few times that you don't like to do work kind of thing, you know, but I totally get that. Um, You know, there's a Jane Liu, who's a famous entrepreneur here, her handle is the lazy CEO because she says she's the laziest person in the world. She's got a hugely successful business. But I think, you know, it strikes me that you've got a real ability to mobilize people and are clearly very infectious in the way that you do that. Would you say that that's one of your, it's like a Peppa Pig thing. Is that one of your talents? (laughs) I mean, maybe. Well, the first thing is hopefully identifying that there's an opportunity to do something interesting and important. The old saying that, like, if I'd known how tough it was, I wouldn't have done it. Like an inability to remember how tough these things are and how, you know, the nightmares, the amount of times with that and subsequent fundraisers where you just want to quit, but because you've already made this commitment, it's physically impossible. So this is this kind of like the finger trap of doing one of these awesome things. As you've said to a group of sick children, hey, (laughs) we're going to raise some money for you. Well, you can't really stop at like 11 p.m. if you don't have it ready, right? 
No, no. Oh my God, feel inside. Um, my husband and I, I think it's interesting when you are a Kiwi away from home, there's certain things that really, the cultural phenomena of being Flight of the Concords. And when, when that song came about, you know, about the theatre and, you know, we'll put it in the show notes, but I think it suddenly connected me to New Zealand like nothing yeah. else before to find out what was your role in that you yeah, chart-topping I mean, cool. single phenomena. And it wasn't that it was just that it was Flight of the Concords. It was just so beautiful. Uh, every now and then, if you're kind of having a tough day, when I'm having a really tough day, I'll just throw it on. Yeah. And I'm so, um, I'll get like a bit emotional because I'm just so very, very lucky. So Christchurch went well, the telethon. And there was a sense of people rediscovering that the country loved national endeavours beyond just going and watching a rugby game and the All Blacks winning. This idea of progress by proxy is kind of, it's a cop-out and that we can actually all get together and do things that are amazing. And so TV3 came to me and said, well, listen, maybe we should look to do something similar. This was now 2012, the year after the earthquake. And I'd started talking to Cure Kids, who are incredible charity. So they're you know very forward-thinking. They invest in a bunch of curative pathways. They are looking to cure illnesses that affect um, children, life-threatening illnesses. So it's not just um, care and comfort. They are looking to solve these things. And so I was really won over by the charity and by Vicky, who was running it at the time, really amazing lady. I said, I think we can do like a, a telethon. And I think we can kind of rally up some really interesting people to get in behind this amazing charity. And along the way, Jesse Griffin, I can't even remember how I met Jesse Griffin, but God, I mean, I don't know if he regret. I'm sure he doesn't regret meeting me. He certainly doesn't regret doing the 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 other all the amazing things we've done together. But Jesse is a, just a brilliant comedian, and his amazing wife Jackie is, you know, Jeff, Jackie Von Beck is like a you know incredible comedian who's successful in her own right. She grew up with the Concords, and so immediately I was like, wow, I wonder if we can do a Concord's take on the charity song. Now, they hadn't filmed their show. They'd finished the HBO series two years before and hadn't filmed anything for two and a half years. And, of course, the world was really upset about this because they, you know, they did this incredible show and then they're just like, eh, you know, they're such yeah. relaxed guys. Yeah. They're like, oh, we're going to just hang out with our families. Yeah, and so we managed to, Brett and Jermaine are just two of the most amazing humans, Reese, incredible human, Rosie, Reese's partner, a brilliant organizer and great human. And so we, we, we lassoed them into creating a song for the middle of this TV show. So other people had created this kind of created components and everyone kind of worked on their bits. And I started filming with Flight of the Concords in Wellington. We just had like one day, again, very 11th hour try to find an office that looks like where Murray would be in Wellington, this kind of like office. The guys came in. Present. Yeah, present. Firstly, I've got all of the, all the raw footage from when they went around all these schools. They went around to schools and they asked six-year-olds, you know, these core questions about how to, you know, help cure kids and whether or not they recognize the Concords. And if you haven't seen it, you should watch it right now. It is about the best 14 minutes of television on the planet. They released the song. The song went to number one, three times platinum in 45 minutes. Fastest selling song in New Zealand history. Faster than any Beatles song, anything like that. It was the year Lord released Loyals. And we beat Loyal in the New Zealand Music Awards for biggest selling single. And that's a, I mean, not that, you yeah. know, she's a lovely lady. But um, anyways, it was a really awesome song and it raised some great money. Best part about that story, though. So 2012, we record this with Brett and Jermaine 
you know, they're so humble at midnight. They were like, uh, when we're recording and we're three or four days away from the show, they're like, oh, we, I don't know if we should even release the song. And by like six in the morning, next morning, when we're putting it together, like this song is incredible. It is just next level. So we decided, okay, we'll release the song. Then it goes and it raises, you know, a lot of money, around $400,000, $500,000. Cure Kids being just the incredible entity they are. They'd already been working with Dr. David Palmer and a couple of other researchers around New Zealand that were looking into curing a thing called late infantile band disease. We'd met this lovely little girl, Katie Archer, and her mum, Lisa Archer. At the time, Katie was, I think, about around four, four years old, maybe less. Batten disease is terminal. Thousands of kids a year get it, but it's not enough to where a pharmaceutical company would invest in a curative pathway because it's just not profitable. These doctors had been, researchers had been researching on the smell of an oily rag for years. Cure Kids were able to give them some decent grants. They are brilliant humans themselves. And we then went in 2015 to another song with Taika and Lord Concords came back again and we got more money and more kind of focus on this. And there's Lisa and Katie Archer feature in that video. And that was 2015. And then in 2018, we lost Katie Archer. So she passed away, just absolutely devastating. But last year, 10 years, almost to the day after the song was released, I got a call from Cure Kids. And then I was able to call Lisa Archer and say that they'd found the cure. A Kiwis making ridiculous you know music and comedy and then kiwis donating three dollars fifty dollars whatever they were donating one person paid a thousand dollars from this for the song from dubai but raising that money and then kiwi scientists um finding a cure and you know so for me that's like an incredible story about what's possible totally and i think you know one thing you know having been involved with x games and obviously you know you're you know in the on your many different careers that you have i think you know one thing that links is your ability to tap into the like a cultural zeitgeist to, to make change that culture we can governments are great for many things not so great for other things same with you know we can't rely on corporate but i think that you know tapping into culture it seems that you really have a real understanding of how that can change things would that be fair you an optimism and then a sense my next sense is like i'm not the person right so i'm not the person to record a song you get the final yeah. concourse i'm not the person to yeah. figure out who can solve it but it's connecting these people you know that those 20 30 people and then of course those though once you start that kind of ball with those people then they can kind of engage with their understanding of how to motivate it anyways yeah yeah it's interesting though because you don't center yourself on all the story of all the success which you know you're a broadcaster plenty of broadcasters have lots of egos things like that it could have been you know you can go it alone to try to make these change or understanding that where can you have the greatest influence and that's by being a connector of different worlds yeah. to, to and you know tapping into that culture that inspires and I, and I love that you know thought about moving thought is wonderful but that's not the only thing that brings people yeah. together kind of thing you know and in fact you know in countries like New Zealand it can be quite toxic whenever I go overseas which obviously I live overseas I, when you go to rugby loving countries the, the the French they always love to talk about the rugby and I'm like I'm gracious enough to talk about the All Blacks with them honestly I'm not it's not, it's not really my bag but you know when you understand well that's your that's the sort of connection point kind of yeah. thing and it's different when you're out of New Zealand that you understand it but when you're in New Zealand so I think hats off to you and your ability to be able to galvanize people to come together and get the community 
community around it. I was just thinking yeah. it would be wild to see these kids who were filmed in that video. They're probably like late teens now. Well, what are we at? So they're 11 years, so they're 17, 18 yeah. years old now. And some of it, and you know, I've got this. So I think I want to build, like if I can start to get myself, if anyone will take my calls, I want to build a documentary about it because it is a great story. And I'd love to, obviously those kids, you know, there's there's just some absolute legendary kids. There's, again, sorry if you haven't seen this, there's this moment in there where this young kid, when they're talking about raising money, describes the actual financial system and just how ridiculous it is that these people lend money to, the queen lends the money to the banks, they lend it to the people who lends it to the queen. And they're like, oh, you just explained the velocity of circulation and how ridiculously flawed the monetary system is. Yeah, it's just beautiful. <laughs> it's just beautiful. Talking about governments and things and collapses, feels like the world is imploding. Let's talk about a time when things went wrong. And when I talk to people like you, often people, uh, you know, always very philosophical because you, of course, have to take the learnings. But I think that when things go wrong, it is shit at the time. And, you know, let's discuss, you know, the collapse of Senate, your clothing company, again, one of the many zigs and zags. Yeah. How did that feel? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there's, there's just so many times, you know, I've, I've started around 20 something companies, <laughs> ADHD. And so every single one that has gone really, really well or has collapse you know they have their highs and their lows and that's just the life as as an entrepreneur you just like you sign up for this ridiculous roller coaster what they don't tell you often is that most roller coasters kind of glide to an end yeah and that's just not the case as an entrepreneur it's like roller coaster that has brick walls in the middle of it when immigration naturalization kind of caught up with me in the u.s because i was i was just a young kid i didn't do anything legitimately there i'd you know i'd started a company without the right visa i was kind of living there as much as I could and kind of going in and out. So I, I'd moved back to New Zealand. But what was interesting is counting your chickens. So rollerblading grew very fast. Like Senate grew very fast. Senate was a clothing company we'd started right at the, the birth of the X Games. So you know, Newport, Rhode Island, 1995, the very first X Games, we were all a part of its kind of its birth. Arlo Eisenberg, a great friend and an incredible artist, and I had started a company called Senate, which was kind of a fake company. He'd draw on T-shirts, we'd make some stuff, and it went well well in, in the context that people liked it, but we weren't making very much. But it grew from like nothing to about, we did $1,000 in 1993, and we did $13 million in 1997. It was just steaming away, just growing really, really fast. And we thought we were geniuses. And... But we didn't understand that we were just effectively, you know, a leaf on a significant tsunami. And that just like a tsunami, it would collapse and kind of like the water sucks out or, you know, I haven't been in a tsunami, so I don't know how they work and the aftermath isn't good. And so I ended up back in New Zealand. My best friends, Arlo, who's a great mate, was they were suing me for abandonment of my kind of my role there. And I was living back with my parents. and. This is the my core advice for entrepreneurs, and that is stay good friends with your parents because you might you might be living back with them at 30, 40, or 50. I mean, I'm probably his breath away from moving back in with them now every minute of my life. This whole entrepreneurial thing is that you always see um, people like, oh, and I bought my parents this, and it's like, well, for every one of those stories, there's probably yeah. 99 of, and I moved back in with my parents. <laughs> kind of thing you're not that this is a therapy session but i've got approval seeking disorder it's the most common disorder it's what you know i've got an incredibly wonderful but successful father who's fantastic at withholding approval not intentional of course it's just the nature of these things and you'll find a lot of people i've got combination adhd plus that it's 
recipe for kind of going off and doing all these crazy things. I think I bought my father, I did, bought them like tickets to Greece. That was my buy them a house. And I thought I was showing off so much. And then like six months later, boom, living at their place. <laughs> Are they like really typical Kiwis where they can like really like just, just really tell you how it is, just really suck the life out of your ego? Or actually, no, my parents wouldn't lord it over me, but they certainly, if I've made mistakes, they'll be like, did you lose money? What really happened? so far into it because I've, I've got a wonderful relationship with my father you know we love each other very much and my mum as well they're not as interested or at least they're not vocally as interested in what i'm doing very proud of certain things and they'll probably tell other people but, not but they're not they're not likely to now this really is therapy <laughs> no i'm not gonna do <laughs> but it's all good it's behind the mind it's like you know, i think it's more i think people are under like understanding it. <laughs> yes <laughs> For me, it is interesting as to how we are like our creation kind of narratives, like how we get to be who we are and where we are and, you know, what we do and this understanding, you know, that I'll easily transfer this into kind of like a conversation about privilege, the immense privilege, you know, everyone talking about anyone that's talking about anything that I've ever achieved. It's on the back of like a good step up or 10,000 lotto wins is what it is like being born in. In a, in a peaceful country from something as general as that to having parents that are like, you know, a safety net. I will also challenge, like this entrepreneurial revolution is really the sum result of a bunch of parents that worked their ass off, saved and made it so that a, an entire generation could think that we were creative inventors. Because you know, there's that net there, like you've got a launch yes. pad and that there's a net there kind of yeah. thing. And that's, yeah, I mean, it's, rare that people probably credit that i mean privilege is one thing but to bring it back to that around you know like the safety of them saving doing good investments and yeah they were living in a better easier time for all the, the reasons that we know but i think that certainly know my mum sees my dreams being realized they were dreams that she could never have had i mean these things are kind of intergenerational team sports my grandfather left india at when the secession was happening you know a million people were getting murdered because of their effectively their their beliefs half a country it's an incredible crazy idea where they petitioned off these two borders bangladesh and pakistan and they're like if you're hindu you live in that country now and if you're Bye. A muslim you're going to move there and they just there's these pictures of law anyways he was like stuff and i'm out which is again i think is another thing that i talk about a fair whack a defining feature of almost every new zealander if not every new zealander has someone in their past, either them or or an ancestor, that was like, "Fuck this, I'm out." Either I'm inspired to try, try to get on a ship and travel twelve thousand miles, or I need to. But it's the defining genetic um, commonality of every Kiwi. Yeah, the gumption to to leave kind of thing. And yeah. you know, I left New Zealand at twenty. 21 yes. and i've never lived back in new zealand even though i still it still yeah. feels like home kind of thing just think part about that is have you analyzed that you know that that is because genetically there were two people that formed you who have those genes in them that they're like any town and village in england 99.98 percent of the population stayed and then like this mad couple like up and moved to new zealand or they were on the run. Either way, they're risk-taking. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so your risk-taking is kind of a gift. And again, the sense of kind of like this intergenerational endeavor that, you know, your grandparents or your great-grandparents. I love that, the team, the team sport of generations, because so often we, you know, we ditch on 
our generations before us have like, you had it, you know, it's like every generation throws shade on the next generation, both up and down kind of thing. Whereas I think that's a a, a lovely truth and truth to tell about it, particularly with Kiwis. It's not probably something that I've thought about in terms of the risks that are Kiwis across the world. And I'd say any country, you're always very networked, but the Kiwi contingent certainly have a good stick together kind of thing and understanding of where you've really come from and coming yes. from, from a small part of the world, looking out, having a very outward look looking view right from the off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I like to use that, anyone that's being divisive about new New Zealanders, quote unquote, new New Zealanders, and understanding that you probably have more in common with that family that arrived in New Zealand today, refugees or new immigrants, you know, in sense of who you are, you have more commonality with them, their ambitions, their endeavour, their risk-taking profile than you do with 99.98% of the planet. New Zealand is a self-selecting kind of experiment. Five million crazy people making crazier children. On the edge of the world, basically. Um, But let's loop back to Senate. Um, You know, with the 90s nostalgia kind of vibe, is there any Senate clothing still available? Yeah. How much does it go for? Because that would be... Yeah, it's always interesting, interesting, isn't it? You know, in 97, you know, we talked about how big it got. We did 700,000 t-shirts we sold in 1997. Chip on my shoulder back, I used to, because when I came back to New Zealand, I was like, had a big chip on my shoulder because, you know, the New Zealand fashion industry just, you know, wouldn't, didn't give a, you know, stuff about any of this. But Arlo is actually, he's my collaborator in drug receipts. So this is, he's an incredible artist. So I'm wearing one of his pieces now. And yeah, there are kids that uh, were making it and printing it and people still kind of copy fight it and kind of rip it off now. But there is some original stuff you can find on eBay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, wild what the prices go for these originals. And then you see the takeoffs of them. It's like, you know, yeah, it's awesome. You have named your beautiful wife, Amber, as being somebody who's shaped your worldview. She, um, I'm not going to say long-suffering because I don't actually know her, but it does sound oh, like she puts no, up, <laughs> does, actually, does sound like, um, you know, living in Scottish. Yeah. <laughs> is she the anchor? Is she the ballast, the yin to your yang and, you know, lets you be you? Yeah. And so my metaphor for that, because I think a lot of these couples that, you know, with 19 years we've been together now, and recently I did 10 days with a group of kind of friends and strangers on a TV show and they were done after 10 days. They were like tapping out and the, the, the TV crew were like ready to kill me. And so 19 years, it's truly an incredible feat that she's still there. The metaphor that some people use in these situations where you've got like, they use a handbrake and anchor. The metaphor I use is that without me, we don't go skydiving and without her we don't have a parachute that's true you know so that sense of kind of it's a little bit more romantic than a handmaid <laughs> yeah she's she was always you know she was born level-headed her parents are just amazing and um her father mother and stepmother have kind of shaped her into this very clear she's a brilliant communicator and she slows everything down and helps me has helped me become a much much better person and so that's probably my senses she's 19 years in she's probably saying she's waiting to like 25 to just see just how unbroken she can make me before she quits i don't know we'll see and then you put yourself back together kind of thing but yeah i think what a beautiful partnership and you've talked about that you know intergenerationally and i think that to look to find that 
yeah, I've s- spoken about this before that I think choosing your life partner, I think I've got a couple of kids. It's one of the things that I'll say, just be really careful on, if you're the sum of the people you surround yourself with and you're going to spend yeah. 19 years with somebody, make sure that they are, they are the person that lifts you up and compliments you. I mean, I definitely compliment her and lift her up. I was worried where that was going because I was thinking, shit, wait a second, if Amber watches this. and yeah. she, No, no, but, but that is like I do. It sounds so lame, but love languages are real. I just yeah. need to know that. That That's absolutely, I don't know who invented those. It's great. And it's great in a, you know, doing it in the workplace as well. Top tip is just, you just do those little online surveys to find like, and you're like, oh, that's why they really need words. That's why they give me gifts. Yeah. Yeah. Let's not, let's not call them love languages and work, but they, yeah. What are they called? They're, um, I don't know what they're called. We did, them. One. we did them. We spent like $1,500 on them and one company. It was really useful and we forgot about it and just started talking to each other normally again. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Brooke, for your time. You've been an absolutely gracious guest with a rollicking journey. Yeah, I can't wait to see the documentary of this song that most people listening to this is probably not going to have heard from the Fly the Concords, but they will because they'll get it in the show notes. And it is, as you say, if you want to feel good, just watch it. And 14 minutes. It's the best 14 minutes you'll spend. And hopefully we'll kind of re-energize your belief and the, the good of humanity. And shout out to Brett and Jermaine and Reese, obviously, but always to little Katie Archer, who kind of started that journey and inspired an entire country to cure a disease. It's a cool and, and it And it happened. Exactly. And it happened. Yeah, I know. Often you don't you hear about this raising money and then nothing happened and then there's you yeah, know, people throwing shade at it kind of thing. What happened to yeah. that money? It's like, no, actually, we did that. So um, congratulations. Thank you very much for your time. No worries. You have a wonderful day. Cool. You've Enjoy. been amazing. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for listening to Behind the Mind. Subscribe if you'd like to hear more episodes. Connect with Meredith via email, behindthemind at becausexm.com.